Now, church, please stand with me as we read our scripture for today's sermon, again from the book of Isaiah. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, the new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. You may be seated. Well, it's good to be back here. Over Thanksgiving, we went and stayed in a house with 20 people, and 17 of us got the flu and the stomach bug. So I, uh, I still have a, a leftover cough, which is like the scarlet letter these days, but, but I have been approved for general population. We're okay. Glad to be back here. Have a 12-hour drive with the flu behind us. Thank you, Erickson, for filling in last week. Erickson kicked off Advent. We are in Isaiah for Advent, and now we're going over uh, from the beginning of Isaiah to Isaiah chapter 42. We read nine verses. I'm really going to hone in on the first four verses. The first four verses, really all nine, but especially the first four, Isaiah is famously and powerfully telling us that one day a servant will come and he's telling us about that servant, who he is and what he would do. And in the context, the, the original Israelites here, we're going to look at the context, they're, they're in exile. They fundamentally misunderstand who it is that God was going to say, send them, who it is that... Uh, who it is that this servant would be and, and what he would do. And they did this because I think most people then and even now, most people I interact with, we're looking for a savior. Most people I talk with are not straight up atheists. Most admit we need a savior of some sort. We have sin, we are imperfect. The problem is we tend to look in the wrong places for that savior. And so that's happening in the context. We see it today. I can't help but think about all of the the pastoral falls that we have seen over the past 10 years, some of them local, some of them national, some of them making a you know, chart-topping podcast. Many of you, as I'm listening to the rise and fall of Mars Hill, if you don't know who that is, uh, what that is, Mars Hill was probably one of the most influential churches of the early 2000s, pastored by Mark Driscoll. Uh, I'm Dozens of campuses, tens of thousands of people, millions of viewers, one of the largest, most influential churches in really the world, and then almost overnight it disappeared, just, just collapsed. And everybody was kind of amazed at what it is we were watching, but, and, I, and I, I appreciate parts of the podcast, I have critiques of parts of the podcast, but in the first episode it was titled, uh, who, who Killed Mars Hill? Like, who's actually at fault? Because it's easy to point all the fingers at, at Mark. 
But one of the conclusions is we all are. Like all of us who consumed it, who clicked it, who paid, who gave her time, energy, and money, all of us are, are, are guilty of killing this thing because we, nothing can take off without buy-in. And I certainly was guilty in my late 20s, early 30s. I was bought in. I was listening. I was reading. I had my own contribution. But the reason that things like this happen is because at our core, we want kings like other nations. We want this. So we can overlook the red flags in the church as long as you know, the people are coming in the door, the money's coming in the bank account, and souls are being saved. We can overlook all these things because we want a specific type of king that, that, look, that fits this 21st century niche that, who's going to be charismatic and gregarious and wooing and successful in all the ways that the world says success should happen. This is a picture of the Israelites receiving this prophecy from Isaiah. So in this context, at this point in the book of Isaiah, the people are in exile. They're in distress. They're actually uh, accusing God in chapter 40. Like, did you, are you just? How is this happening to us? We're in exile. Did you take some right that is owed away from us? And God in, in chapter 40, he answers saying, why do you, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? So basically, you, Israel, why is it that you say, my way is hidden from the Lord and my right is disregarded by God? And then chapter 41 is a defense of God's sovereignty and power and an indictment on the Israelites. He says, you are an idolatrous people. Did, did I take a right away from you? No, I caused the exile to happen. I created history. I steer history. I interpret history. I did this to you. You deserve it. The wisest among you who you follow are nothing. And talking about the wisest counselors that Israel had and who they were following, in verse 41, God says, Behold, they are, a, they are all a delusion. Their works are nothing. Their mental images are but empty wind. So you finish chapter 41, and this is bleak. <laughs> like, this is really bleak. It's really heavy. And then the very first verse, the very first words of 42 are, Behold my servant. You can't do it. You don't deserve it. You don't have anybody. You follow all the wrong people. You want kings like other nations. You want a savior made in your image. You want what God can do for you. You don't actually want God. Behold my servant. I mean, this, this word behold is a real, like everything's bleak. Behold, I'm going to tell you the way that it's all fixed. This is a really big behold. So I hope you can see how this connects. We all, at some level, we want kings like other nations. We want servants and saviors made in our image who are going to give us the things that we want, but they're not actually giving us God. That's what's happening in this context. They're looking for success in the eyes of the world. They're not actually just looking for God. And so I want to look at this passage. I'm mainly just going to stay in the first four verses, but I want to look at what it is that Isaiah says about the coming servant, behold the servant, and then I want to just look at how that connects to Christmas. So first, what Isaiah says about the servant. Isaiah very clearly tells us four things about the servant. We see the qualifications, we see his job, we see his method, and we see his success. So first, the qualification. Verse one, behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, and here it is, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. 
So this servant, his qualification isn't his military success, his great upbringing, his academic prowess. It isn't his ability to win and woo a room. His qualification is that God delights in him. None of us delight God. All of us have rebelled against God. All of us have chosen a path of enmity with God. But there will be one in whom God delights. And so, I mean, you think about, we get glimpses of this. And even in this fallen world, there are times we really, truly just delight in somebody. Or maybe when you're, 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 you're dating a boy and you just look at this boy and just staring at him gives you such pleasure. You know, infatuation has hidden all of his sin nature. You're just staring and getting pleasure from that staring. That's delighting. Or if you've ever had your first baby and you're holding that baby, that baby has yet to puke on you or disobey you, then you just, you just, it looks like the most perfect thing that could exist in this world. You delight just in staring in that baby. These are glimpses of the way God is saying he will feel about this, this servant who would come. And of course, they're only glimpses because you marry that man and he will leave the toilet seat up at midnight and you will not delight in him. And that little baby will grow up to be a teenager and there will be moments that you don't delight in him or her. But it's still a good glimpse at what God is saying. The qualification is that I will delight in him. An eternal delight that will never go away. Then Isaiah tells us the job of this servant. And this is the end of verse one. He will bring forth justice to the nations. No big deal. And the Israelites, I think they, many of them would have heard this. Again, they're thinking, what can God do for us? Not just, how do we get God? You know, they're thinking, this sounds great. What the servant is going to do is restore Israel to its rightful place in the world and justice to all these other countries and nations and empires who have done us wrong. That's how many of them, them read this. Then we talked about this, and, you know, the last three, it's funny in God's providence, how some of these series, when they end, how they connect unintentionally to what's coming. I'd like to tell you I planned it, I didn't. But we looked the last three weeks in our sermons, in, in our walk through Acts 10 and 11, that this was always the plan from the beginning. In Genesis, God said, one day there will come one, there will be a descendant of the seed of Abraham who will come and bless the nations. And so this word justice that we have here the best way to define it is making everything right in the world making everything the way that it should be so it's so much more than israel's misplaced hope that they would be restored as a superpower in the world and it, it's no more pain no more grief no more loneliness no more addiction no more fear no more evil no more sin this is a comprehensive making the world the way that it should be. This is a, a big thing. This is not just making one country great. This is making everything right in the world. But they can't see the grandeur of the scope that God has for humanity because they can't get their own glory out of their mind. So he is going to make everything right in the world. This isn't going to be a servant who comes to give glory to Israel. This is a servant who is going to come and all of the earth will find glory in him. That's the qualification, that's the job. And then, I think this is the real like head turner, the method. How is it that the servant is going to do this thing? This is verses two and three. 
He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. So how does someone, if you're an Israelite reading this, how does someone bring justice to all the earth and never raise their voice, never break a bruised reed and never put out uh, you know, a, a candle with, and the metaphor is a person, never put out any of the lights. I mean, every ruler who has ever really lived and come and, and brought justice or order to something has to raise their voice. They have to put certain people down. There are pesky fires you have to put out. How, how does this fit if you're an Israelite and you're reading this with what we're understanding? It seems counterintuitive. To, so we have the job, bring justice to the nations. The method seems counterintuitive to the job. I mean, it'd be like if I wanted to run for sheriff of Orange County and my campaign slogan was grace and mercy to all. I mean, grace and mercy is fine, but that's, that's counter to the job of justice that a sheriff would have to bring. But somehow this servant is all of that. This servant is powerful yet meek and humble. This, ser- this servant will not raise his voice. This servant is going to be kind and tender, even to people who are as weak as a faintly lit candle, where maybe there's more smoke than there is light. Okay. And then lastly, we see the servant's success. Verse four, he will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth, that the coastlands wait for his law. So he does not, the servant, he's going to accomplish this thing. And, and not only is he going to do it, he will not grow faint. He will not grow weary. He will not be discouraged. He will not slow down. He will not fail. He will not stop. I mean, you can't say that about any, any of us. If there's anything about humanity that defines us, we grow weary. We grow faint. We grow discouraged. Every time I officiate, probably almost every time, not every time I officiate, often when I officiate a wedding. When I always said this when I officiated your wedding. I say there's a reason we take vows. We make vows because we know it's going to be hard. We know we're going to be discouraged. We know we're going to be faint-hearted. And, these, and, and, and we're doing this at what should be the easiest of things. The big, love each other. Build each other up. Believe the best in each other. We grow weary at the most joyful tasks. But this one, this servant, he will not grow weary. We, weariness defines us. We need verses that say, do not grow weary. Because that's what we do. But this one will not do it. He will not fail. He will not turn back. He will not slow down until his mission of making the world right is accomplished. This is a big, big promise that Isaiah is giving us. And now, on the other side of Christmas morning, we get to see how it all connects. So how it connects to Christmas. Over 2,000 years ago, there was a real literal Christmas morning. It most definitely was not December 25th. It was probably in May sometime. But there was a real day when this real servant entered into this world. And no one who has ever lived has checked any of these four boxes that we're looking at. No one. And this one would check all of them. And that one was, of course, Jesus the Christ. So I just want to look back through these four qualifications and see how Jesus uniquely fulfilled all of them and is the servant king that we've been waiting for. So right, start with qualification. God will delight in this person and put his spirit upon him. Do you remember Jesus' baptism? Matthew 3, starting in verse 13. 
Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. He's saying to fulfill Isaiah and maybe some other things, but specifically Isaiah. Then he consented and Jesus was baptized. Immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were opened to him and he saw the spirit of God descending like him, descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Has anybody here ever had God tell a whole room of people, that's the one I'm pleased with, you, I'm delighted in you. Has anybody been given the spirit of God in a way that everybody can see you are different and you're anointed? We visibly saw the spirit come down on you. No, the only one who has ever delighted God is Jesus. So that's his qualification. But as we look to his job, we're gonna see not only does Jesus delight the father, Jesus makes the father delight in us as well. All right, so what is the job? The job is bring justice to the nations. Again, God has told Abraham, through your descendants, one will come who will bless the nations, not who will condemn the nations, but bless the nations. This promise was reiterated to Isaac and then Jacob and King David, and here we are now. So Jesus came to make everything right in the world, and the way that it starts is by restoring our relationship to God. We have a lot of other problems. We have pain, strife, loneliness, all those other things, but those are symptoms of the problem. The problem is that we are not right with God. We have rebelled against God. That is our problem. And we have to address that first and greatest problem before we can ever really deal with any of the symptoms. And this is why John writes, he tells us, John chapter three, right after John 3.16, there's more actually after John 3.16. John tells us that the, the main problem is what Jesus is coming to address. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. That's Jesus's mission. Through our belief, we would not have condemnation anymore. To desire everything to be right in this world but not have a right relationship with God is like having cancer and asking the doctors to fix all the symptoms, but never address the actual disease. And because God delights in Jesus, he can actually be the only one who could ever be an offering for us all. I mean, imagine all the delight you felt in whoever it is when we were talking about delighting that may have popped up in your mind. Then know God delights in Jesus 10,000 fold and that God willingly and Jesus willingly goes to the cross to die in our place to receive all the wrath of God on the only one who God truly delighted in that we might switch places that that he receives all the weight of the wrath that we deserve and he doesn't and we then get everything that he deserves that he merited so now when we believe in him we switch places God looks at us and he sees Jesus. He doesn't look at sinful Jim and see sinful Jim. He sees Jesus because we've traded places. If you believe in Jesus, God no longer sees your sinful nature. He sees and delights in his perfect son. Second box checked. And then thirdly, what about the method? So this, this is the one that caught all my attention this week. Like this, I, I really had a hot minute where I thought I was gonna, I just, 
stop everything, do a whole sermon just on the method. So the method, remember, he is going to establish justice through grace and humility. And since we're connecting it to, to Christmas, I mean, just look at how this servant king came into the world. He put on flesh. Paul says that's emptying of himself, humbling himself. And he doesn't just, he doesn't put on the flesh of a king marching into a coronation into this world, which he could have done. The way he took on flesh was by coming as a human baby. I mean, show me a more defenseless creature on this earth than a human baby. I mean, other animals, they come out ready to claw and bite. Even little kittens, you know, their claws are sharp. Little puppies have sharp teeth. I mean, if you're walking down, say, Park Avenue, and you, you have some bushes next to you, and you hear some barking or meowing in there, and you can tell it's they're young, you're still going to approach that with some measure of caution. If you see a grown man in the bushes, you're going to run. <laughs> but if you see a little baby in these bushes, there's no caution. You run in and you grab the baby because it's the most defenseless, helpless thing, I think, on earth. And that's the way that our humble servant chose to enter into this world. He didn't do it with pomp and circumstance. He did it as a baby without even a proper place to stay. And that's why we sing silent night and not loud night or wild night. He came in quietly. And then Matthew makes, this is really interesting, Matthew chapter 12, he points to Jesus' method, the way that he interacts with people as proof that he's fulfilling this actual text. So Matthew 12, you may remember the Pharisees, where Jesus is performing miracles and healings. The Pharisees don't like it. They feel threatened by it. This is the first time in Matthew the Pharisees conspire to kill Jesus. And, and Jesus could have challenged them. He could have spoken up. He could have gone against them, but he doesn't. In the way of this servant, this is what Matthew records. Jesus, aware of this, the threat to his life, withdrew from there. And many followed him, and he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. Why? This was to fill what Isaiah what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. And then he quotes our text. Behold, my servant who have, whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. No pomp and circumstance. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. Again, not condemnation, hope. And this is Jesus' MO the rest of his life. This is what he does when he's arrested. This is what he did when he went to the cross because God so loved the world that Jesus stayed on the cross. And because of this, we can now rightly understand the rest of this prophecy about his method, an area that's probably the most misunderstood, I think, of, of this text. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. We're talking about the weakest of people. A, breed, a, a reed that is bruised about to break. A candle with just a faintly, faint little bit of fire. Maybe more smoke than fire. And we have to remember, remember we said that in our natural state, we do not please God. We've repelled against God. We've chosen a life of enmity against God. And so we are not in our natural state. If we stick with the candle metaphor, we're not lit. 
There's no flame. Jesus in his job comes to light our flame. And so what this is doing, he's taught, this is how you can understand all the confusion behind bringing justice to the world through grace, mercy, and humility. He's talking about believers here. This is what's true about those in a right relationship with God. And so you may, you may have the smallest flame. It's just, you may feel like it's barely there. It's flickering. I just see smoke. I see wax. I just, I don't know that this is going to continue to stay lit. And what Isaiah is saying, if Jesus is the one who lit that flame, it's not going out. It will never go out. He will keep it going. Some of you feel like a bruised reed. Some of you have been beaten down. Some of you do feel like it's just the judgment of the world on you. And maybe you've made a really bad decision to get to that place. But Jesus is saying, if you come to me and you're repenting of those sins, I will never break you. I will always keep that flame lit. Let me just look at how he dealt with the woman who had been accused of adultery. She was about to be stoned for the crime that she had allegedly committed. Jesus came in and he shooed off all these men and he asked her, where are those who condemn you? And she looked up and she said, I, I don't see them. And she said, neither do I condemn you. And the next part is really, really important. Go then. And do not sin. So he's not snuffing her out. He's not breaking a bruised reed. He's liberating her. He's setting her free from this life of sin. And I also want to point out that Jesus in his ministry, he picks up this language of candles. You may remember in the Sermon on the Mount, he, he equates us as individual candles to that city as the sun is setting that shines brightly, not because of any of us are inherently just shining bright, but because together all of us make a light that shines bright. The, the plan was never that we would be a dimly lit candle down in the valley by ourselves. And the implication is that we really do need each other. You know, in, in an era where millions of people are leaving the church and many of them still professing Orthodox Christianity, we can't miss the fact that Jesus is saying this thing, this gathering, this local church, it is really important. This is the design that you would be the city on the hill. You can't do that if you're not a part of a local church. I mean, we, there are two implications. You need it. I need it to be a part of it. But the other implication is we need you. The design was for you to be here with us, helping us to shine more brightly. And I could flesh that out a lot of different ways. I don't have time to, but we need it. Our children need it. My kids go to a Christian private school, and, and I'm very thankful. They get to, they memorize scripture at school. They do all these other things, weekly chapel services, all these things. But nothing they do in their school is going to substitute for what they're a part of here. I mean, the local church is where the generations come together to pray. The local church is where we serve each other in really cool and unique ways. The local church is where we celebrate the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. There are means of grace in the local church that you cannot get outside of it. Might we shine brightly together? So that's his method. And then lastly, what about Jesus' success? He will not grow weary or be discouraged in his mission to redeem humanity. So at Jesus' ascension, he raised up and he left. And you know, I've said before, sometimes the thinking is like, 
Jesus went up like a, like a balloon until you just can't see it anymore. A rocket ship, I think it's gone. I think it's still staying. Nope, nope, now he's gone. That's not what happened. Jesus rose some feet off the ground. The fabric between our world and the next was torn open and he went through. And when he did, he went to be physically with God the Father where Jesus would continually and always intercede for us in every time that we have need. So if you've ever seen the 2006 uh, Superman Returns movie, I don't know if you remember that, but there's this moment when Superman's kind of on the edge of space and his eyes are closed and he's listening to all the cries for help from humanity. And then he would respond to the most important ones and he could go with the speed of sound and do a lot of great things, but he was still, even so, one person at one time. What Jesus is doing is responding all the time to everyone through his Holy Spirit. He is not growing weary. He is not slowing down. He is not stopping in any way. And this will continue until the fullness of time when he fully establishes justice in this earth, makes it everything that it was designed to be, even better than the Garden of Eden. And this is what we see when John records this in Revelation 20. I'm going to read the first five verses. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, a dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be, 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 be mourning, or crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away, and he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. That's how our passage ended. This is where everything is going, but it starts by fixing the main problem. And what we see is then eventually all the symptoms are healed as well. This is what Dan was praying about. This is what we sang today. Nothing is stopping Jesus. Nothing is slowing Jesus. Nothing is discouraging Jesus. And this is why the gospel is making it all around the globe. This is why the gospel has gone to the ends of the earth. This is why there are more Christians living now than have ever collectively died. And it's easy to be discouraged and looking at the Western world with people just leaving church left and right, but the mission is booming globally. And I actually make an argument that what's going on in the West is just a, a purification from a lot of the cultural contain, con, contamination that the church experienced in the West in the 19th and 20th centuries. Jesus is that servant that Isaiah is telling us about. No, nobody's ever checked any of these boxes and he checks them all. So the first question we need to ask is, is Jesus your king? Is he your king? Is your relationship with him a flame that he has lit and will never let go out? Or are you under God's condemnation still? For the rest of us, are we seeing Jesus as the servant king that he is? Or are we wanting to develop a servant in our own image, the way that the Israelites were? Are we wanting to develop a, a king like the nations, the way that the Pharisees in Jesus' day were, were? Or do we see Jesus as the servant king and willingly and joyfully give all authority of our, every part of our lives to him? Because that's what the servant king deserves. And it's actually only there that we're going to truly thrive 
because we've been, des- we've been designed to be under the authority of this servant king, Jesus Christ. And so when I, when I planned last December that we would be in Isaiah, I wasn't thrilled about it because I, it's a harder genre to preach. And there is a hesitation, but I knew that I wanted to do it. I don't want to avoid things that are harder, but there's this singular focus on Jesus that I just thought would be really fun to be able to each week leading up to Christmas remind ourselves of who this servant king is and to be renewed individually and collectively in our understanding of and our love of this one who will come and make everything right in the world. To let our minds go to that place where there really is nothing to fear anymore. We have a perfect relationship with our God and there is no fear, there is no pain, there is no loneliness, there is no addiction, there is no evil, there is no sin, there is no relational strife, there is no depression, there is no anxiety. That's what's being promised to us. That is who entered the world on Christmas morning. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you give us Jesus. We thank you that you give us Isaiah to help see Jesus more clearly. Jesus isn't, doesn't have more or less value with or without Isaiah, but Isaiah helps us to see and experience the value and the wonder of your son, Jesus Christ. And I, I pray this morning as we sit for a moment and consider what you're saying to us, that you would allow us to see areas of our life that we are not putting under the authority of Jesus Christ and that you would you would allow us to desire to live under the authority of Jesus because it's there that we flourish that it wouldn't be a stick but a carrot that we would want to give fully of our whole lives to you I thank you for this time we pray this in Jesus name amen